Welcome to another edition of Driving the Sea Bus. Uh, you know, we're really uh, privileged today to have Cameron Mitchell, uh, principal of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants uh, and the CRM Group, and and uh, he is no stranger to anyone in Central Ohio, and, uh, and and now is breaking out on the national scene. He's got restaurants coast to coast. Uh, we're going to hear more about uh, his success, uh, his origins of where it all came from, um, and some of the challenges that they have in the restaurant industry today. And and we'll do a top 10 of uh, questions uh, just from the internet of what are these, um, you know, maybe some uh, points that are uh, a little contentious inside restaurants and how Cameron would answer those. So uh, it's going to be a very exciting episode. And Kalen Bucklew McComb, actually McComb Bucklew, will be joining us once again as our co-host uh, after the fairy tale wedding she had so stay tuned well welcome to the uh the podcast uh, driving the sea bus i'm scott mccomb your host here with kaylin mccomb uh now kaylin bucklew that's right so kaylin got married between uh, uh broadcasts here so uh congratulations kaylin you. on your fairy tale wedding thank you so much perfect day uh, I'm an old married lady now, so I fight with my husband over what we're going to have for dinner and how we cancel our plans for the weekend. Well, just so, so. he knows, you know, the secret to long-time marriage is knowing that when you come home, you're wrong. And then you're going to have a happy marriage. You know? Yeah. So that's, I think he understands that. I think he does, too. Yeah. We're off to a good start. Good deal. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm sure you guys will have a nice, happy life together. So Thank you. Congratulations. Looking forward to it. We have a very special guest with us today, um, uh, Mr. Cameron Mitchell, uh, who's a friend of mine, as well as... Uh, 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 Central Ohio's most famous restaurant tour, and uh, and becoming one of the most famous in America as he uh, continues to expand all the different things that he does um, culinarily uh, across the United States. So, Cameron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you two today. Wonderful. Thanks for coming. Um, you know, also he is the author of uh, Yes is the Answer. What's the question? Which is an excellent book. Um, that talks about you know your philosophies and and uh, and the kind of the the foundations that you built your mm -hmm. your restaurant empire on. Yes, and uh, also includes a little bit about my dubious life uh, prior to getting started in the restaurant business. But my journey it just uh, profiles my journey all the way to here present today. So gotcha. from being a young kid. Now, well, let's 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 rewind just a little bit now. Um, so you went you were here in Columbus, uh -huh, right, and correct. went to Up Arlington High yeah, School. Yep and sort of sort of yeah. <laughs> right so did you drop out of high school i did my sophomore year i dropped out and was a high school runaway or runaway and drop out and uh i came back the night uh that my junior year was to start and kind of got caught back up and um uh kind of funny story i eventually got elected senior class president and uh i finished almost last in my class i was 592 out of 597 at a 1.05 gpa but uh, look at you now do you have any regrets i mean my gosh uh none you the only regret i i ever have is i i only went to culinary school up in new york uh, uh the cia which is uh, culinary institute of america it's the harvard of culinary schools but i never went to college <clears throat> and i have three kids now in college but uh uh, I always thought I would make a great fraternity guy. I never got to be in a fraternity, so that's my only regret in life. Looking back, <laughs> how yeah. it happened. We can we can start like an old entrepreneurs of fraternity. There, there's still time. <laughs> there you go. There's still time. Well, we have one. It's called the Golf Club. It's out in uh, it's right. out in New Albany. It's kind of a grown man's fraternity in oh. a way. So my, we're a little bit more behaved. Yeah, my son's a junior at University of Kentucky, and uh, I'm going down for Dad's weekend. There you with go. His fraternity next weekend, so I can't wait. So. Oh yeah, you're, you're gonna, gonna have, have a blast yeah. there. Give yep. me a chance to 
go back in yeah, time. Yeah, Parents Weekend was always a blast. I remember when <clears throat> my parents would come down for, for Parents Weekend at The Ohio State University. The Ohio State University. I was an Alpha okay. Phi. That's right. Ooh, my wife was an Alpha Phi. Ah, go Maybe. Bears. Yeah. Love it. You guys have a little little thing there. I know, yeah. yeah. See, wow. you're already in Greek life. You don't, it, it's fine. <laughs> Closer than you've uh, ever thought. Right, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Well, so, so you go to culinary school, and then you come back to Columbus, mm-hmm. and what happened then? So I wrote out my goals. I had an epiphany. I was uh, at 18. I was working for beer money, living at home with mom, just out of school, and you know, going nowhere in life. I was not a boy, not a man, and I, I was uh, um, struggling. I didn't want to go off to college because I didn't know what I wanted to do. It wasn't that college was out of the question. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to waste my time. And um, I had an epiphany one day during shift change at Max Nerma's up on Kenny Road back then, very busy restaurant, uh, would do a 1,000 covers, uh, guests every Friday and Saturday. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so, uh, and I got suspended there for be late uh, too many times and the laziest guy in the kitchen. So I was suspended for three days, put on 30 day probation. And, um, and I was during that probationary period, I come back to work and I had this epiphany that, you know, the shift change on a Friday. I said, this is what I want to do the rest of my life is pandemonium in the kitchen. I just loved it. And I said, I love the energy. This is it. So I went home that night and I, I wrote out my goals. I said, I was going to go to the culinary Institute of America. I'd heard that and I was going to become executive chef in five years. By the time I was 23, then general manager at 24, uh, regional manager at 26, vice president of operations at 30, and president of a restaurant company by the time I was 35. Not ever thinking about my own, just president of a restaurant company. And I, w- I woke my mom up at 1 in the morning, showed her my goals. Uh, she was quite excited. I went back to work the next day, uh, the uh, hardest working guy in the kitchen, working for myself and my future in the best attitude, never really looked back. So fast forward, I got into the Culinary Institute and I graduated, came back here to Columbus at 22 years old, and I uh, there was a restaurant downtown called The 55 on the Boulevard, which is a top 10 white tablecloth restaurant in the city at the time, and they were opening a second restaurant up at Crosswoods, and I opened that restaurant as a sous chef, assistant chef, and I, I it got promoted to executive chef of the downtown restaurant at 23, hit my first goal. At 24, I got promoted to general manager. Uh, we opened up subsequently uh, four more restaurants. We grew to six, and I was uh, got promoted to the operations manager of that group. Uh, we had my boss, who was the operating partner, and our corporate chef, and our CFO, and myself were in the front of the house operations, and um, and that was uh, went well. But uh, my boss was a uh, uh, a real micromanager, <clears throat> great guy, taught me a lot. Um, but the company started to outgrow him, and, and the company was owned by some local wealthy business uh, people. And it was a hip pocket business for them. They were building these restaurants as amenities to their developments and so forth. And they didn't care about us. And so I started to hit my head on the ceiling realizing, you know, my ultimate goal is to become president of a restaurant company. So I started to realize it wasn't going to be there. And uh, so I was 28 years old. I went to uh, Grandview Avenue, Spaggio, one night on a Friday night. And uh, about 9 o'clock to meet a friend. The place was busy. And Chef Hubert, who owned it, come out, came out of the kitchen with <clears throat> a glass of Chardonnay and uh, was kibitzing with a guest in the dining room. And I watched him for a few minutes. Then I had another epiphany, clear as a bell. Uh, this is May of 1992 that I'm going to start my own company. And so I left July 11th of 1992 uh, to pursue uh, a launching at birthing a company. It was never about just opening a restaurant. That was never my goal. And because uh, I want to be president of a restaurant company. And so uh, I spent the first 30 days in my one-bedroom apartment up at the Continent back then with uh, poster boards all over the walls, taped up, 
legal pads, wadded up pieces of paper, books, magazines, and I was reading, writing, rewriting, rewriting, uh, you know, the company culture and values and what kind of restaurant company I wanted to be and wanted to create. So, and that lasted about 30 days. And I said about the course, uh, so now here we are, August of 92. And I said about the course of uh, building a company wrapped around that culture and values and still doing that today. Next uh, August of 22 will be my 30th anniversary doing wow. that. And, That's uh, awesome. And so uh, it took 14 months to open the first restaurant. We opened up October 5th of 1993, Cameron's of Worthington. And uh, we have, next year we have uh, Valentina's, which we announced, uh, Northern Italian Cuisine Restaurant opening up in uh, Bridge Park in Dublin. And we have a new Pearl uh, opening up in Tampa, Florida. Uh, And whichever one of those opens first, we're not sure which one yet, uh, will be our 100th restaurant we've opened since I started. So that'll be kind of a fun celebration. And uh, uh, we'll end up, uh, we've closed 14 over uh, the the 30-year period. which is, you know, that's fine. We So we'll have, we sold 22 of them to Ruth Chris Steakhouse in uh, 2008. So we'll have 64 restaurants uh, here when, once we cross over that 100 mark here in the next uh, few months. So I kind of want to stop exciting. you on, on one of those points. You know, I know you said you closed about 14 restaurants mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. the lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the restaurant industry kind of has a stigma that it, it's a hard industry. Mm-hmm, it's it's mm-hmm. definitely, especially to be successful at for a, for a long mm-hmm, period of time. Mm-hmm. What is that like? I mean, tell me about some of those hard times throughout your experience of where you either had to make the hard decision, um, you know, whether it be to close or to stay open. I mean, tell yeah. me about that. That has to be scary. We don't have enough time on this podcast <laughs> to uh, talk about all those. <laughs> but, uh, you know, listen, I tell people every single restaurant we open will close at some point in time, whether it's, you know, 10 years, one year, you know, uh, 50 years, you know, um, lots of restaurants in the city. Lindy's, for example, down in German Village has been there 40 some years. I mean, uh, you know, we opened up Harvey Ed's in the short, Harvey and Ed's in the short north and it was an open a little over a year. So, um, you know, it's really a matter of walking from the dugout to the home plate and keep swinging. And we know we're going to strike out every once in a while, but uh, we also know we're going to hit some grand slams every once in a while. So it, it all adds up together to, you know, good five good restaurants. And I always say, you know, if I open up five restaurants, one's going to be a dog, uh, three are going to be what I call singles, doubles, or triples, to use the baseball analogy, and one's going to be a home run. And at 14 out of 100, that's about an 86% batting average. And, How do you and know we'll when to it. swing? Uh, you just, while you do homework, get better at the craft. We're certainly better at our craft at picking, you know, bad, we've done some bad sites over the years, locations. Uh, we've talked ourselves into some projects when we shouldn't have. And, you know, um, so, but we're better at our craft and our, our part of our culture is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And, and so, um, you know, uh, our, our success ratio, if you will, is better today than it was in the beginning, but all in all, um, we know, we know you can't be perfect. Michael Jordan didn't make all of his shots. You know, it just happens. And, um, but I always tell people I may shoot myself in the foot every once in a while, but I'll never shoot myself in the head. You know, oh. so, you know, I may walk around with a limp, you know, here or there, but we'll recover. And, and we have, I've, you know, made some, some big real estate mistakes in the past and, um, we're just not going to do that again. I don't think. I, I, well, that's hopefully. how you learn. Right? Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, by stepping on your own foot, that's yeah. how you learn how pay, to walk. Straight. Paid a lot of money for this education. I that's know. exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. The, the school of hard knocks is really where where the rubber meets the road. Right. You know, right. Cameron, you you talk. I know in your book about uh, uh, you spend a lot of time talking about the lessons that you've learned, and, and one of the bigger things that you uh, shine on there is taking care of your people mm-hmm. and the fact mm-hmm. that you know. 
that that customer experience is is delivered by your associates, mm-hmm. and if your associates aren't, you know, right. uh, if they're not focused and all that, then then that's not gonna they're not gonna that's not gonna end well with the right. right. with the visit. So tell me tell me about that about how you surrounded yourself with a quality team and what you do on an ongoing basis yeah. to make sure that you got quality people. Yeah, well, I'm a desk jockey these days, so I'm not out there delivering the experience our people are, and you know, but that has been uh, a pillar of our culture since day one. You know, my mom. Uh, really didn't know anything about business, but she saw Dave Thomas speak from Wendy's once, and and Dave said, you know, one of his keys to success was surround yourself with great people, and so I've always believed that. And you know, we our guest service is a hallmark, great guest service of our company. But um, you know, I really look at it as it's it's the guest doesn't come first. I look at it as our our people come first. We have a direct relationship with the people. I'm uh, you know, brazen enough to even say we don't have a direct relationship with our guests, you know, so we, we take care of our people. Then our, I look at a triangular relationship. We take care of our people, our people then take care of our guests and our guests take care of our company by coming back time and time again. And so at the end of the day, ultimately, uh, we deliver, we define ourselves as great people delivering genuine hospitality and, and we we deliver great guest service in our restaurants because our associates are happy. They, they, they care for the company they know the company cares about them and uh, it's uh, we have a great relation, relationship with our people, and and that shows in uh, the service they deliver and, and the success of our company. But it's always it, people first. I think. Well, that's that's uh, wonderful. I, and and now with um, since we're still kind of on the tail end, hopefully of the pandemic, mm-hmm. you know that was a big shock, right? Mm-hmm. Probably the biggest. One of the biggest things you ever had to deal with oh, in absolutely. your business. Yeah. Uh, same thing for me. Yeah. But um, tell me about how how you uh, how you fared with your folks, and mm-hmm. then and then uh, I from what I can tell, most all your folks are back, and mm-hmm. so you, that's maybe an advantage you have with mm-hmm. uh, some of the mm-hmm. competition, right? Because mm-hmm. you're able to provide meals and service and such. Yeah, you know, labor uh, workforce is the biggest issue. One of the biggest issues facing the business today, and you know. Um, we always pride ourselves. We have very low turnover in our associate ranks and our, our hourly and management ranks. But uh, um, you know, we lost a lot of people. With you know, we furloughed forty five hundred people uh, in one week uh, with the start of the pandemic, and I took a lot of heat for that in the beginning. But we had no choice. You know, our sales got cut off. We got shut down. A and B. I wanted to get our people at the front of the line as soon as possible for unemployment and, and get them taken care of. And, and, uh, we raised, uh, some money for, um, we raised about three quarters of a million dollars for our associate relief fund. We sold a bunch of gift certificates and we put all that money towards that fund. Um, but you know, through the pandemic, um, uh, the key for us was just open, honest, transparent leadership, you know, and, and, you know, I always said, I've always had that, but it wasn't, you know, during the pandemic, you know, that's when you lean on your culture and values the hardest, sure. the most, not, you know, throw it out the window. And, you know, I, it, I, I mean, I don't know, as we all did hundreds of zoom calls with different sets of people and organization. And I was sharing with them all the way through our plan and, you know, you know what we had in the bank. And once we got the PPP money, the first, that first tranche, that was really, I really kind of felt we were going to survive at that point. Cause that gave us enough, uh, to get, be able to get reopened and get moving. But, uh, and none of us thought the pandemic was going to last this long. And clearly, it was the, it was the most difficult year I've ever had in my years of leadership in the restaurant business. And um, this year, I say, is tied for second uh, with uh, 2009 with the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this year has been a very uh, difficult year also. So we lost a lot of people, but we get a lot of people back. And, and uh, we're hiring a lot of new people in the organization. So, uh, you know, we're very careful today to make sure we're, we're you know, 
train, train, and train some more and, and teach our culture and philosophy and values because we've got a lot of new people. So that, you know, it's easy to slip back on that. And we're constantly measuring, you know, our performance out there and our guest reviews and making sure we're not slipping back as we're going through this transition with people. But uh, it's uh, it's been very challenging. Um, you know, COVID's still with us. We're still having, you know, people out with COVID and people out with, you know, quarantines and, and short labor. You know, you're short-staffed. Um, you know, it gets difficult. And we had, uh, you know, in the beginning, obviously, everybody know we, we knew had, we had uh, government restrictions everywhere across the country and, and capacity restrictions and so forth. Those all got lifted. And uh, then we instituted our own capacity restrictions because, you know, we only had enough, get, we, we couldn't take care of everybody we needed. And um, we still, to this day, have some restaurants uh, we, we, you know, we can't open at full capacity. Uh, a perfect example of that is we just hi- opened El Segundo in the short north four weeks ago. And our plan there is to be open seven nights a week and Saturday and Sunday brunch. And um, we were faced with a choice, either not open because we couldn't hire enough people or open Tuesday through Sunday dinner, six nights a week. And we'll open Monday night later and Saturday and Sunday brunch later. And that's what we chose to do. So there's examples of that all throughout the company, you know, <clears throat> how um, we're under some sort of self-imposed restriction uh, because of the, the shortage of staff. And it's getting better now, as I suspected it would, after the, all the stimulus ran out in the first part of September um, and school came back in session and so forth. So we're getting a little better, but uh, um, it, it's um, <clears throat> uh, it's still, even today, it's still the worst labor environment I've ever worked in. Yeah, well, I tell you, I know that you were on CNBC and a number of uh, shows, you know, mm-hmm. talking about the, the situation during the the heat of the pandemic and when things were completely shut down, and and uh, and and so um, I know that you were a big leader for the restaurant industry, mm-hmm. trying to uh, the, uh, label that plight and all yeah. the different fights yeah. that you had. But but you're right. I mean, the uh, that most of the folks in the, the labor pool in the restaurant industry is on the on the shorter end of things, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so. Um, keeping those people, um, you know, coming back, and when you when you uh, when the government enticement is is so so much, uh, you know, compared to what it normally is, uh, that that keeps some people on the sidelines. Yeah, you know, one of the things also that I, I wanted to thank you. Um, I know you're a very benevolent person as mm-hmm. well, and uh, you like to invest in young people. Mm-hmm. Um, I introduced uh, you to a, a gentleman named Mitchell Titus, mm-hmm. and uh, and you just made his day. Mitchell has read your book two or three times. He was in the Culinary Institute and uh, Southwestern City Schools, um, a real workaholic, mm-hmm. uh, plays the cello, all kinds of different things. You know, real gifted guy. He came in, and so I asked Cameron, hey, would you mind meeting this guy? So Cameron not only just didn't tell me this, but he just went ahead and did it. Uh, that's the kind of guy you are. Uh, he's, he invited him into his office. Uh, they sat there, and they uh, had a great discussion and lunch, and then uh, at, the, at the end of the thing, he offered him a, uh, a mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. to work wow. at Martini's. So oh, uh, awesome. Mitchell Titus is now working at Martini's. He, Mitchell Titus is getting bought a new car, and he just out of high school, bought a new car, and now he's uh, building his own house. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And this is your one of your I think he's gonna end up okay. I think he's well, gonna do just you know, fine. That brings up a really good point, Cameron, that you actually mentioned earlier, and it was about how you know, during the time where probably a lot of other people your age were going off to college, you didn't. And it was mm-hmm. because you you didn't really know what you wanted mm-hmm. to do. And mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of people nowadays that 
kind of have this mindset of, oh, that's just what you do after high school. So mm-hmm. you go to college oh, and sure. you get a degree, even if you don't know what that's, I mean, dad, you, you kind of did that. You went to college and majored in high street until I'm, they almost kicked you out for yeah. not picking a major. But, but uh, Kaylin, now that's a very educational environment, high street. You know, you learn to love, oh, you learn to yes. fight, you learn to budget. Um, Absolutely. All things, I'm know? not saying those it was wrong. I'm just right. saying it was happening. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, I want to go back to that because there are so many opportunities out there for young people to learn and get experience without having to, you know, pay out mm-hmm. the wazoo for a four-year sure, degree. Sure. What would you say to people in that and situation? And have the debt. And have and the correct. debt. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, hard work, uh, as Scott was just saying, the school of hard knocks teaches you a lot. Totally. You know? um, but, I, you know, I advocate in, uh, you know, that we built Mitchell Hall at Columbus State, new culinary school over there to help young people along the way because there's a lot of what we call the non-traditional path that people want to take. Uh, we're trying to create a program right now, which I think is going to be super cool. We have um, I've been introduced to a guy who's uh, working with um, uh, foster kids who at 18, wow. they graduated out of that system and they're on their own. And so we're trying to put a program together where we'll take these foster kids and talk to them, teach them about the restaurant industry. And then they, if they work for us, then we'll pay for their school at uh, Columbus State That's and amazing. hopefully turn some lives around there and give these young people some stability and sure. a family atmosphere that they can grow in. And, you know, the restaurant business saved my life and, 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 and I'll never uh, forget it. Always yeah. be grateful to the industry. It's just like Mitch. I do it all the time with young people. You know, I was a student at one point in time and, you know, um, and trying to uh, help young people along and, and find their path and their passion. And right tell my kids, like, I don't care really what you do. I just wanted you to find your passion. If you can find your passion, whether it be, you know, being a teacher, firefighter, you know, a cook in a restaurant, whatever it is, you're going to, you're, you're going to do well. And, you know, my passion happened to be the restaurant business. I've told my wife now for 27 years, I'm going to work, uh, but I haven't really gone to work mm-hmm. in 27 years. You know, it's because I love what I do. And right. if you could find that, then great. So the more people we, I can help turn on uh, to the industry, this fabulous industry, the better. And, and that's why I do it. You know, I don't ever forget that, you know, I was a student, you know, I started as a dishwasher at 265 an hour, you know, 41 years ago. And um, it is what it is. So we, we got to pay it forward. It's part if, of our responsibility. If somebody wants to get into the restaurant industry, but isn't quite sure if they're ready mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. dive into culinary school, mm-hmm. where do they start? Well, they usually will start <clears throat> getting a job. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've done, uh, uh, what we call stages too, where we can, you know, we have people come into the restaurants and in the kitchen and just work for a day or two, just to even get a snapshot of something if they like it. But, uh, uh, generally people will start, you know, light prep in the kitchen and, and kind of figure it out if it's something for them. And, you know, um, you know, we'll see if it happens, you know, some, it's not obviously for everybody, but you know, uh, the people that do get the bug and, you know, our, our company is just a beautiful example of that. We have, uh, you know, we have almost 5,000 employees today, associates, and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, I tell people, all you got to just look to your right, look to your left, and you'll see a success story. You know, people started with, you know, uh, 30000 or 10 12 bucks an hour are now making well over six figures and, and building their careers. We've had uh, hundreds of CMR, Cameron Mitchell Restaurant, marriages in the company, hundreds more CMR babies, and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, you look at our executive team, you know, they all almost all started in the hourly ranks or, or you know, our, our senior VP of human resources started as a server at Molly Woo's 20 years ago while she was going to school at Ohio State. And, you know, you got those success stories everywhere and, and it's um, it's just great. And so when I preach to young managers today within the company and, and, and associates at these presidents round tables, I do, I talk to them all or a new opening about the opportunity. In fact, we show 
a video at the Every New Orientation for a new staff for a new opening about the restaurant industry and the opportunities and, and so forth. So I think that's great. I think that's so important because I also think there's a lot of stigma. I, we talked earlier about the stigma about the restaurant industry as a whole, but I think that there's also a stigma when it comes to working in the restaurant industry. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who look at, oh, you're a server. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Well, there are some servers in New York that make a pretty damn good money. Mm-hmm. So big, be big careful. Yeah. Be careful before well, you. Th- this is the deal. Not only are they serve, but during the day they usually like own real estate and have mm-hmm. their own real estate portfolio totally. and all right. that kind of stuff. So it's uh, you know the gig economy now um, allows for that. So people can go and they can they can bring three hundred four hundred dollars in uh a night okay yeah. and uh and and uh, and also get to associate with folks that can help their day job which might be again owning real estate uh doing podcasts mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, who knows what they yeah. do mm-hmm. yeah. you know now, now you do uh develop um so you've got the columbus state experience right mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. and but you also have a new concept that opened uh, not too long ago uh, where you are grooming younger chefs to have a smaller environment, and they work uh, uh, in a in a collaboration type uh, mm-hmm. a piece called Bud Dairy. Maybe mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about Bud Dairy. Yeah, Bud <clears throat> Bud Dairy is part uh, uh, um, you know business opportunity and part uh, social enterprise. And you know the idea was if we could take these young uh, and some of them that you know a couple people had a food truck, a couple people have one restaurant or two. Uh, but a couple people have had no experience at all. Uh, and Daisy at Modern Southern Tables, a classic example of that. She'd never had a food truck or anything, but she was a great Southern cook. And she's a smart gal. She got her MBA. She worked for uh, J.P. Morgan, but she wanted to make that leap. And she went to the tryouts, and her food was awesome. And, and um, so, but the idea is we can take someone for 50 grand or to 100, maybe if they really want to go big, to open their space up in Bud Dairy. And they can easily make then hopefully a six-figure income from that, starting with that. And, and that's already proven the case. People have almost got their money back, if not gotten their money back since they started with us. Wow. And so, uh, and then hopefully if, you know, when I'm, you know we, we try to coach and help all along and, and help them with their craft, maybe refine their food, whatever the case may be. And, uh, um, and hopefully one of these days, you know, just like Jenny's ice cream came out of the, came out of the North Market, uh, Joe, uh, Hot Chicken Takeover came out of the North Market, you know, that we might have one of them, one or two of them go to bricks and mortar. I also started a young leadership group. I, I have seven uh, young restaurateurs in this group. We meet every other month, uh, uh, break bread together from four to nine and uh, share a libation. And um, all these guys are in their 30s and have, you know, two, three, four restaurants. And um, I wanted to help them avoid some of the pitfalls that I made in the early days. And and so we have a great time. They love being together. And, and you know, I always learn a lot. You can learn from anybody. And, and it's just great to be with these young people and helping them grow too. So it's just Young every, people are the yeah, greatest. Yeah, every chance we can. You know, I believe in, <clears throat> you know, push, pushing it out there. You know, Providence, everything I can do to push out in our community um, I know ultimately, you know, I don't, you know, do it to be self-serving, but ultimately we grow and we get better and, uh, it, it helps everybody. So that's wonderful. That's what, and you know, it's kind of the Columbus way though, too. I mm-hmm. mean, I don't know anybody in Columbus. <clears throat> I mean, there's a few outliers, but you know, most people in Columbus are willing to collaborate mm-hmm. with one another. You know, Correct. we have a very conducive, 
environment here. Yep. And, uh, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, I was with Christy Nome, the governor of uh, mm-hmm. South Dakota last evening, and she said, oh, I went out for a run. And I couldn't believe that everybody I went by was waving and saying good morning Hi. and yeah. all this kind of stuff. Yeah. She says, this is a really friendly place. Yeah. And uh, and it's true. And yeah. it's very collaborative as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, so uh, people understand that, you know, if if, if, not, if everybody makes it, then everybody's uh, successful. So. Yeah. I mean, you, you think about, it, you know, the state, uh, local governments, you know, you don't have city council fighting with the mayor, with the county commissioners. You know, we have Ohio State University is very collaborative. Uh, the business community, you know, all of our business leaders out there, the Columbus Partnership, I'm on that. Uh, you know, we have 75 CEOs on that. And our only one goal is to help uh, Columbus grow and help every all boats rise in Columbus. And there's not one self-serving goal on there. It's just we're, it's community involvement. And, you know, Harvard has done a, a case study on Columbus called the Columbus Way, and uh, they teach it to other uh, cities and governments around the world and people that send and come learn about Columbus and how we do things here. So it's, um, we're very, very fortunate to live in such a great city. That's wonderful. Well, I think we're going to enter our speed round now. And I was going to say, I, I Kaylin's hate, got some questions for you from uh, around be, the country. I hate to be the bull in the China shop, but we're agreeing a little too much right now and it's making me uncomfortable. So we're going to get a little controversial. Okay. okay cause, um, Cause we have to have some of that. We do. Uh, that's why that's why I'm here, right? Um, no, so so we're, I have in front of me the ten most controversial restaurant policies. Uh-huh. Now I'm just going to kind of read them out. If you want to, like, you don't have to tell us what your policy is. I'm just looking for some thoughts and opinions here on maybe why these policies exist. Do we like them? Do we not like them? Dad, feel free to chime in too with all of your years of restaurant expertise. <laughs> Number one, just look at my belly. Look at my waistline. <laughs> Number one would be no kids allowed. Yeah, I don't know any restaurant. In today's world, that, that does. That. I don't either, actually. So. I mean, I know bars, but I mean, yeah. I if I'm really hungover, I'd love to have that policy, but you know. Yeah. All right. Well, next is number two: no substitutions on the menu. Yeah, I obviously don't believe in that. I wrote a book called "Yes Is the Answer." What's the question? So <laughs> we're happy to make substitutions. Well, in your opinion, why why would somebody even have that policy? Like, is that uh, is that like a like a supply thing or arrogance? Uh, it is difficult. It's, it creates more of a challenge, right? But I always say, great restauranteuring is difficult. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But or you have these arrogant chefs that say, "Oh, that dish is supposed to have mushrooms on it." It changes the flavor profile if you take mushrooms out and. You know, like, uh, who cares? You know, uh, I'm ordering food. Let me let me be the judge. But the mushrooms. Well, yeah. Well, it right. also has. It could have to do with the skill level of the of the yeah. of the uh, yeah. you know, the people provi- providing the food. So if, yeah. if they don't have a lot of talent back there, throwing them curveballs is just going to do nothing but back up the line. You yeah. Know? Right. So that's fair. But it happens. But you know, it's like it, there, within reason, I guess. Uh, you know, if we're packed and busy on a Saturday night, someone wants an orange souffle. We may not be able to do that, you know, but that's okay. But that's that's. So, so I would like to substitute my mashed potatoes for a fillet. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that would uh, just be a slide up chart. Yeah. Number three: auto gratuities for large groups. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, we it's actually illegal to do that. Really? In the federal government, um, and we consumer uh, alert people. Never knew yeah, that. Yeah. Um, the uh, with the IRS, um, <clears throat> but. Uh, you know, so we have always declined to do that. Um, we suggest a gratuity to a large party, um, but ultimately it happens. Um, and it's just the downside of being a server in a restaurant business. You might get a large party of 12 or, you know, and then they go separate checks and then, then they don't want to tip very well, or they only tip 10% or whatever. And you do all that work, uh, and you really get a very low tip out of it. You know, 
But for me, uh, the way I look at it, that's just the cost of doing business and it's just the way it is. You know, you also have tables where you make a fortune. You know, I was sure. in a restaurant the other night. Uh, the bill was so cheap. It was $60. And I love this lady. She's been here 35 years. And so I tipped her $60. On, you know, so mm-hmm. you, you're going to have that. You know, uh, I'm going to make her day, you know. So um, it's just, it's, it's going to roll with the punches in my opinion. Okay, fair enough. Number four, no reservations. Yeah. <clears throat> um, reservations are hard, again. And that usually goes down the line with uh, the level of service and the price point. You know, uh, people are going to Ocean Prime or Ocean Club here. You know, they want a reservation. They want to know they can get a table. They're coming to spend a lot of money and so forth. But if they're going to Cap City, you know, uh, you know, or, or Rusty Bucket, then, you know, it, we don't really need to make reservations for them. But we do do call-in reservations where you can call and put your name to the list or you can, you can actually make a reservation for a party of eight or more if you want. So it just helps the guests and helps the restaurants. But, um, you know, restaurants that actually say ever no reservations at all usually are packed to the gills yeah. and they're just taking advantage of that. Yeah. How, how has Open Table helped that? Has it helped it or hurt <clears> it or yeah, using technology to, to make those reservations? Yeah, that's a whole other topic we can talk about for hours is the encroachment of technology in the restaurant business. We spend uh, $800,000 a year on Open Table. Um, it's very expensive and you, you really can't be without it now, you know. So that's an added expense to our company that we never had, you know, 10, 15 that's years ago. However, um, it does provide some benefits. We uh, benchmark ourselves. Open Table, we get a one, two, three, four, five star review and you know, our goal uh, is to have, you know, 95% four and five star reviews. Mm-hmm. So we can track those and we can also benchmark ourselves against our competition. Or an example, if I'm going to a new location and trying to determine if we want to build a restaurant here or not, we can look at our competitors and open table and see how many reviews they have. And we can compare that to how many reviews we have. The reviews are usually indicative of, of their sales volume. So there's other tools we use it. We use it for training when we get negative comments, all sorts of things. Um, but uh, so it's it's good, um, but it's also very expensive. Yeah, number five kind of goes along with number four uh, with reservations. Needing a credit card to hold the reservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something we've started to do, particularly during a pandemic, and that'll that'll be a policy that'll stay with us because, you know, you get uh, right now. There's so much demand out there. You know, we lost about fifteen percent of the restaurants during COVID. Uh, people are dying to get back out in restaurants, so we're running at full capacity. And, you know, you make a uh, reservation for 12 or 20 people in the restaurant, uh, we, they're just for larger parties, and, um, uh, and they no-show on you, you know. It, it uh, gets very expensive, so we, we really can't afford to do that. So we're, and we're taking the deposits not to – we don't ever want to – Ever want to uh, take you know have them cancel and collect sure, the deposit? Sure, sure. Really not to gouge, serve, right? right really it's not to gouge the It's customer. just to add a little incentive to call us if you want to cancel, right? Then versus just well, no show. And when you think about, I mean, there are, the hair salon that I go to, you mm-hmm. have to cancel within twenty four hours yeah. of the appointment. If you don't, there's a thirty dollars charge yeah, for those that. People are losing money. Absolutely, you know? I, I get it. So uh, number six, I I'm just before I even read it, I'm going to say I've never even heard of this in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, no cell phones or cameras. Yeah, uh, that's happened to us a couple of times. Really? We, we travel the country researching restaurants and looking at restaurants all the time. And occasionally uh, we'll get in a restaurant where we're taking pictures of the menu or taking picture of a, a plate or of an environment. 
And every once in a while, someone will get short with you and say, hey, no cell phones in here, no no pictures. And I think it's ridiculous. I'll share anything, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I could I could maybe see it if, let's say, there's a celebrity that's dining yeah. and it's just for privacy. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. It's mm. kind of weird. Not but a very fan. little. In my experience, all my experience, I've seen that, you know, a handful of times. So. Yeah, we, we ought to be uh, reporting those people to the BSA folks because they're probably laundering money through those restaurants. <laughs> that's why they don't want to have any cell phones or pictures. Yeah, well, how are, how are the influencers supposed to review mm-hmm. the creme brulee mm-hmm. exactly. if you can't take a picture of it? That's right. Vinny, no pictures. All right, number seven. This is actually something that we encountered during COVID, and I was not a fan. Um, dining time limits. Mm-hmm. Yep, same thing. <clears throat> you know, um, you come in there, you know, we're, we're a busy restaurant, you know, and we're trying to recover from COVID. Our, you know, our costs, our food costs are through the roof. Everybody knows that right now, uh, you know. Um, and, you know, we lost, you know, a tremendous amount of money last year. And and so now if you've got all this demand and you get a table that comes in there and spends hardly anything and wants to stay for three or four hours and you miss another turn, um, that that's hurts the restaurant. So sure. we've started to kind of monitor that and sometimes tell – we would never tell someone, uh, hey, you need to go. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Your time's up. But we might say that in certain con- in conditions at the beginning, you know, before they when we make the reservation, hey, it's a two-hour time slot. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, number eight, restaurant dress codes, meaning for the customers, <coughs> not necessarily the staff. Uh, that's the, the most sticky wicket mm-hmm. uh, that you're just talking about right here. You know, we have uh, – particularly in our urban settings, you know, um, and young people today are dressing, you know, a little more, you know, uh, you know, or in the urban settings, whatever, you know, ball caps on, whatever the case Mm -hmm. may be, you know, uh, just, you know, sports jerseys, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, it's tough, you know, you're in a fine dining restaurant to, you know, allow those people in you want to, here's a perfect example. If you said no ball caps, for example, you know, uh, and now, you know, you have a woman or a guy comes in and has cancer mm-hmm. and, you know, and is, you know, balding or whatever, <clears throat> wants to wear a cap. <clears throat> Excuse me. What are you going to say? It's okay for them, but it's not okay for someone else. Sure. And so, yeah. um, it's really difficult to, uh, you know, monitor. And I'll throw in another one in there, um, that we've had to eliminate from our restaurants and it's very challenging also, uh, with the advent and the growth in marijuana usage in, in, uh, across the country. You know, we, you know, we get people who will sit in their cars in hot box, you know, mar- you know, mm. a joint or something, and just reek like marijuana when they come in the front door, and that's really offensive to guests. Oh, you know, sure. and so um, we've had to tell some people like that, and it's hard. I mean, you're a host of the front door, and you say, "Listen, I'm sorry, you smell." Yeah, you how do you handle in. that conversation? I'm sure it's not an easy one, and I'm sure right. they probably don't respond very well. Although, if they are hotboxing, they probably are just like, "Oh crap, they know," yeah. and then let, run. And you know, it's like um, what's hotboxing. You know, sitting there in a, in a closed oh, okay, car. Okay. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, but uh, and why we're on this subject? You know, it's you read about it all the time in the airlines, right? You know, hostile uh, flyers right. and, and interactions and yeah. assaulting of, uh, of uh, flight attendants and so forth. We currently today are spending about six hundred thousand dollars a year for security in our downtown urban restaurants. Um, you know, um, because we have some very unruly guests in our restaurants, sure. and um, and that's just. You just didn't have that right. years ago. You'll have you that know? everywhere. Yeah. I mean, we have that in banking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyways, so got to do what we got to do. Number nine, no standing at the bar. Okay, let's talk about this pre-COVID and post-COVID because obviously with COVID, there are new rules in place. Mm-hmm. So pre-COVID and post-COVID. Yeah. 
Um, hey, listen, we love people standing at the bar. That's what we want. Right? We want <laughs> the more people, you know, the better, right? Yeah, we want the buzz, everything else. So, yeah, that was a COVID uh, deal that's yeah. kind of coming. It's on its way out right now. I mean, you know, it'll, it'll go away. I'm not worried about that one. Okay. And then last but not least, cash only. Uh, those are a few old-time restaurants uh, that do that. Uh, the one in uh, 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 Dayton, the Pine Club, it's a cash-only restaurant. Mm-hmm. Listen, uh, credit cards run about 3% of our sales we pay to credit card fees. So, you know, if we did cash-only, we'd be 3% more mm-hmm. profitable. I'd love to be cash-only, but uh, it's just not... Uh, in today's world, yeah, no. I, do, I don't think it's realistic. Yeah, especially young people today don't carry cash. I don't. Uh, so, well, I mean, let's face it, you don't have to count the cash. You don't have to worry about the cash walking off. The, right. the transaction right. takes less because you don't yeah. have to make change. Yeah. You don't have to run to the bank to deposit the mm-hmm. cash. As mm-hmm. the banker, I would defend the credit card companies. Well, you know? yeah. Just right. saying. Yeah, I hear you. No, absolutely. <laughs> you know, now, how are they supposed to go through, like, right, went through uh, a McDonald's drive through the other day and, uh, for an egg McMuffin, and they're pumping cars through there just right and mm-hmm. left. They now have the credit card machine on the outside of the window, right. and you just go through and tap your card. Or, and Or scan your phone, boom. Well, yeah. just co- going right on To the by. contrary, there's a lot of places that only accept credit cards. Right. They won't accept cash anymore. Right. That's, that's, right. Where you're, that's where it's heading more that way. Yeah. So. And I'd be interested to know, while we're on the topic and we're sitting with two bankers, is how how has that evolution been for you guys? Now, I know like with new fintech and, and everything like that, I mean, there's a million different ways you can accept credit cards, and, and some of them are more high-tech than others. Mm-hmm. I, I, You know, obviously, I am in banking now, and I um, went to Canada, actually, two years ago in 2019, and uh, it was the first time I'd actually seen restaurants and servers with handheld mm-hmm. credit card machines that they yeah. were kind of taking around place yeah. to place. That's coming more common. Tell me about right, what that's with been the like digital for digital chip readers yeah. and so forth. So we have probably a quarter million dollars a year with the fraudulent credit card mm. chargebacks that we uh-huh. have um and you know because of our back of the house technology and our register systems not every it's not completely developed the technology yet but it's, we now have chip readers in all of our they're not the portable ones but mm-hmm. they are there so now we've cut our, our chargebacks down by half you know once we've installed these chip readers in, in wow. the restaurants so um in the ocean primes we want to have them everywhere but you know, uh, fraud is a, is a big thing too. We got to continue to fight all the time. Absolutely, so, but it's it's it, it's coming. All that technology is moving that direction. I tell you what, what an interesting ten questions though. I mean, those are mm-hmm. uh, all things that are happening. Uh, you know, in the restaurant industry real as time. it continues yeah. to evolve real mm-hmm. time. That's mm-hmm. right. Well, Cameron, I really enjoyed you being here today, and uh, and obviously, uh, congratulations on uh, thirty years. Uh, of being in business uh, here in Central Ohio and transforming the the food scene not only here in Central Ohio but in America and also on your hundredth restaurant that Thank you're you. getting ready to open and so uh, exciting and yeah it is super exciting I'm sure we're going to see more and more so I want to thank you for being on the podcast today and driving the bus well my pleasure it's a pleasure to be with both of you today anytime. <laughs>